Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, the recent closing of Ellen's Energy Adventure got me to thinking about Epcot and what it originally was, a combination of World's Fair and technological park that really was forward-thinking for its time. It shared ideas, much as Walt told us he intended to when he first laid out the idea for Epcot. And in my humble opinion, no pavilion better summed up that than the original opening day attraction, the Universe of Energy. It's really about the attraction itself, so come on, let's take a look at the attraction. Energy was one of those key things that made sense to include in the technological park known as Future World. Why not educate and entertain, or edutain? Telling the story about energy and how we consume it, and how we can better harness natural resources. The idea for an energy attraction was on the table in the very first plans for Epcot, and the first conceptual model was created as early as 1978. Imagineers wanted to move people in cars through a show of sorts, combining different types of experiences from film to live action and special effects, in a way that had never been done before in a Disney attraction. One thing they wanted to do was to have a large solar energy collector called a Sun Catcher located in the building's center. The structure would have used the energy from the photovoltaic cells on the roof to demonstrate the force of solar power. The initial plan suggested unguided cars would then move around the sun catcher into a complex attraction and end with some kind of walking element. But unfortunately, the technology itself wasn't advanced enough to make an attraction quite like that. It would have been a quantum leap beyond the predecessors that Disney had created to that point. Computer designs were in their infancy, and some of the ideas just weren't feasible without some computing power. So instead, the Imagineers decided to build a familiar indoor type of attraction with a solar panel on the roof angled in a way that was obvious and visible. From a technical point of view, it turned out that there were 2,200 solar energy panels made up of 80,000 3-inch photovoltaic cells. The cells generate around 77 kilowatts of DC current when the sun is at its best angle, and their actual physical size is almost two acres. This power is transformed into AC current, which gives the vehicles inside the pavilion enough power to provide for 15 single-family homes for a year, but because of the power consumption of the ride itself, only about 15% of the power it needs. Even so, the desired dark ride was going to be expensive to construct, and Disney needed a sponsor. The Standard Oil Company was looking to expand its reach in the early 1970s as it merged several companies into what would become Exxon. At the same time, Disney's new resort wanted to take care of motorists who were driving their vehicles into Central Florida. So they forged a partnership to create a car care center just at the edge of the Magic Kingdom parking lot. People could simply fuel up, or they could have work done on their car before they returned home. And so there was this partnership with Exxon, and as Disney moved ahead with the concept for an energy pavilion, it made logical sense to partner with Exxon as the title sponsor of the pavilion. It turned out to be a bit of a difficult relationship with Disney wanting to tell a story and Exxon wanting to promote its brand and advertise through the pavilion. But after many script rewrites and some changes to the attraction, they came up with something kind of clever. The energy pavilion scope was broadened so that it would include all forms of energy, with a special focus on fossil fuels. And because it focused on fossil fuels, the Imagineers wanted to give you a sense of where they came from. So you would travel back in time to see the dinosaurs. Then you would learn about other types of power, and energy that wind, lightning, water, and heat, and sun could create. The show ultimately became known as the Universe of Energy. It was the first of future world's pavilions to reach its final design. Throughout the development of Epcot Center, the Energy Pavilion never changed locations, despite the fact that many of the other Future World Pavilions were constantly being moved around. 
The reason for this was the solar panels. In order to maximize the amount of sun, the energy pavilion needed to be in that location at that orientation. By 1979, the pavilion's final shape was decided, and the only change that it had was a slight color change to the actual uh, building design. Oh, and there was one other minor change. There was the fountain in front that was added later. Originally, they had planned to have a lagoon like the one in front of the land pavilion, but that was removed from the plan at some point during the final stages. The pavilion was on time and ready for opening on October 1st, 1982. The inside space was 105,000 square feet for the show. In its final form, that space featured four films and a dark ride. Guests entered the pavilion and watched a pre-show film before moving into a large theater. When seated, visitors watched a second film before the theater itself broke up into six dark ride vehicles. In the dark ride portion of the attraction, guests traveled back in time to the dinosaurs to get a better idea of where the fossil fuel energy came from. And then after traveling through the primeval diorama, the ride vehicles reassembled and guests watched another film and then a grand finale. After exiting the attractions, guests could explore a few Exxon exhibits before leaving the pavilion. And now let's look back at the attraction that was Exxon's Universe of Energy. You entered the building behind a mirrored panel. Just inside, there was a tile mosaic which is meant to represent the sun and its rays. If guests looked closely, they could see one blue tile which was meant to represent the view of Earth from the sun. The room you entered was a giant pre-show area. It was mostly standing with a few benches toward the back of the room. On the large wall was an eight-minute live-action film presentation about various forms of energy found in nature and traced the history of how mankind harnessed these different forms of energy for his use. While it seemed quite simple, it was actually a work of art and engineering. It was known as the Kinetic Mosaic, invented by Czech film director Emil Radok. The mosaic screen consisted of a hundred rotating prism-shaped flip screens, reminiscent of those on the classic game show Concentration, arranged in 25 wide by four, high, by four high array. These flip screens rotated under computer control and were synchronized to the motion picture that was projected on their surface via five synchronized motion picture projectors. Each flip screen contained three sides with white projection surfaces on two sides and a matte black surface on the third. The combination of the film and the screen's rotations created undulating, sometimes three-dimensional appearing images. The narration was done by Vic Perrin who had done some other work for Disney, but is best known as the radio host of the old-time radio show, The Outer Limits. During the conclusion of the pre-show, the song Energy, You Make the World Go Round, was played. The song was written by Bob Moline, who actually was contracted by Disney to do work at Epcot after some Imagineers heard him at a nightclub. But you know what? That's a story for another day. And now let's take a listen to the pre-show. The universe we know is one of dynamic forces its heartbeat sending a constant flow of energy coursing through the vastness. This energy is never destroyed nor is new energy created, but energy is perceived in different forms. Within the atoms of all matter, on a level most infinitesimal yet most powerful, is nuclear energy. Binding atoms into molecules and crystals and stored in the cells of all living things is chemical energy.
In the sudden flow of electrons, there is electrical energy. In the world around us, there is constant motion. And in this motion, there is mechanical energy. Unleashed in the motion of molecules themselves is heat energy. Finally, washing over the earth in an all-pervasive, never-ending flood is light energy. We long observed with fascination the interplay of these elemental forms of energy, noting that certain forms often changed into others. Then, through the genius of the human mind, came the realization that energy could be harnessed and made to work for us. Energy locked in Earth's vast forests was put to use. Fire became both friend and tool. The unbridled winds were captured. The flows of mighty rivers were tapped. For centuries, we depended on these three resources alone. Then, only a little while ago, we learn to use the energy locked in fossil fuels. In coal. In oil and natural gas. The energy from these fuels has dramatically advanced civilization. Sooner or later, present resources will not be sufficient for the world's energy needs. Only by understanding energy in its various forms, the universe of energy, can we build a transition to a better tomorrow.
listen and you'll hear the heartbeat of a universe teeming with force. See all the forms and the faces of nature taking its course. And feel all the wonderful motion flowing through things far and near. Nature will share her secrets when we are ready to hear energy. These are a few of your faces glowing in timeless places, bringing our lives new graces. After that, the doors would open and you would enter the room which held the show vehicle. The traveling theater or the moving grandstands. These grandstands were broken into six sections. Three cars, one on the left, one on the right, and one in the middle, with two sections in each, were in the room. Guests boarded the cars from the side and were ready for the 35 minutes that awaited them. And honestly, this is where the magic happened. Disney was a pioneer in ride technology that was truly unique. A little history here. In the 1964 World's Fair, there was a federal pavilion, which Disney was not a part of creating, but which caught the attention of the Imagineers. In it, viewers were conducted on a trip through the American history in what me might be called a drive-along theater. Designed, built, installed, and operated by Cinerama, the exhibit featured bus-sized open vehicles which transported visitors around a city block square expanse of motion pictures, still photography, and three-dimensional effects. Screens moved aside, went up and down, and even formed a tunnel for the buses to drive through. The 12 moving grandstands each sat 55 people, with a new group of 55 people start starting off every 80 seconds. They were independent and each vehicle was fitted with individual earphone equipment for the presentation soundtrack. The grandstands measured 18 feet long by 16 feet wide and contained two rows of seats, each set higher than the last, and the vehicles glide along a 1,250-foot track circling the pavilion at a rate of about one mile per hour. Jeremy H. Leppard, in charge of the film project, described the film exhibit which Cinerama, Cinerama created at the Federal Pavilion for the U.S. government as, Audiences actually have to learn a new way of looking at life through movies. It's something like walking down a strange street. Our technique produces a real feel or aura of an era. The Imagineers originally had a plan to make the ride an Omnimover, but that wouldn't allow for the presentation they wanted, and besides, the moving theater really stuck with them. But how could they create it? For the universe of energy, the Imagineers thought that maybe tracks would work. But they wanted to get creative and turn the theater and rearrange the cars to allow for different views, and tracks and switches would make that really complicated. No, this had to be a grander and perhaps something that hadn't been done before type of attraction. They also drew some inspiration from a wonderful World of Disney show in 1958, in which Walt himself talked about Disney, the, Disney and the Magic Highway, which included an intelligent roadbed to help move cars along. In many ways, the universe of energy became the embodiment of that. The technology for the ride already existed in warehouses. Driverless, autonomous vehicles could move items around a predetermined path. In fact, Disney saw some of them firsthand in Holland at a company called Edgemen. The Imagineers wondered, could we do this with people? So the vehicles they created were called traveling theaters and referred to as a group as a six-pack. Each car could accommodate 80 guests for a ride capacity of 480 people. There were actually two sets of these vehicles. There was another show ready about every 17 minutes, though you never saw the other vehicle during your journey. In all, that's about 2,000 guests per hour, and it's not quite the efficiency of the Haunted Mansion, which runs at about 2,400 guests per hour, but it's still an impressive people-eater, as they call it. Now let me try and sum up how this ride vehicle worked. Now keep in mind that we didn't have the computing power we have today, and things had to be somewhat mechanical. So I'm going to try and simplify the discussion and just talk about some of the main features that you might have uh, encountered in this attraction. The Imagineers put a guide wire on the ground and let the car follow the designated path. 
Magnets under the floor help keep track of when the cars pass certain waypoints. If the metal plate on the car hit the magnet at the expected time, everything was okay. If not, something was wrong and a ride operator would be notified to check. If there were certain types of timing misses, the main show controller called the Wayside would shut the ride down. There were also sensors on the floor at various intervals that detected foreign objects blocking the path, and the vehicles themselves had pressure-sensitive plates in the front that would cause the ride to shut down if it ran into anything. Rudimentary by today's standards, computers in each car controlled the speed and pacing and allowed the six-pack to form up into various configurations. Meanwhile, this wayside machine provided overall coordination of the show, ride vehicles, turn cars, and open and closed doors. As you'll hear shortly, in both the first room and the last, there were these giant turntables that let the traveling theater rotate, changing the view for the guests. This is one of the more ingenious parts of the whole thing, and fairly complex to make happen with any consistency. The other truly amazing part is how these vehicles were powered. Yes, they used the sum of the energy from the solar panels on the roof, but more than that, each car had an onboard battery. They were charged via a charging station, kind of like you might see in Baymax in Big Hero 6. But the really cool part is that they were charged while sitting on the turntables. Each car had a lead plate underneath it. Beneath the car, a powerful electromagnet matched up with the plate and created an electric field that ultimately was sent to the battery for charging. But what's more, it was safe for humans to be around. Wireless charging technology that used inductive magnetic fields in the late 1970s? Why isn't that the standard 40 years later? Now, to be fair, the design is not entirely Disney's. The inductive power coupling system was designed by the Inductran Corporation based out of California and was reused here with license. Now, back to the ride itself. Once everyone was in, the seating area rotated 180 degrees to face three large movie screens for the first film, a four-minute hand-drawn animation that depicted the beginnings of life on Earth and the formation of fossil fuels. Sinking deeper under cover of mud and sand. 
once again, heat, pressure, and time were the remarkable transformation. of fossil fuels occurred over a span of millions upon millions of years. Much of the Earth's present supply was deposited during the primeval era when great reptiles roamed the land. Come with us now and experience a few moments from that dark and mysterious past. At the conclusion of the film, the seating area rotated once again to face a curtain, which then rose to reveal a primeval diorama. The entire seating area moved into the diorama as it broke apart into six multi-passenger vehicles that took guests on a seven-minute journey through the diorama, which was populated by numerous audio-animatronic dinosaurs, including Edaphosaurus. Then you saw two Arthropleuria fighting the family of Brontosaurus in a swamp that smelled like swamp, and at various times, one of them sneezed on water onto guests. A stegosaurus fighting an allosaurus on an overhead cliff perched precariously on a rock that moved. Then you saw several trachodon bathing beneath a waterfall. A number of ornithomimus watching as one falls into a tar pit. And then the elasomosaurus that lashed out at the tidal pool at guests. He was definitely the scariest of all the dinosaurs on the ride. And then there were numerous pterodons that were perched around an erupting volcano, complete with flowing lava and a realistic volcano smell. The lava erupting from the volcano was actually something that resembles hair gel. The lighting gives it that lava color. Now, I should know that the serene entrance of the primeval world had evolved as you went through the seven minutes and been replaced by the chaos of a final scene in the diorama, kind of showing how you went from the dinosaurs living to how they died and became the fossils and created oil for us. The diorama itself is 515 feet long and took three artists over 6,000 hours to paint in the background. And incidentally, this drew its inspiration from the World's Fair as well. In uh, Walt's original diorama in the Ford Pavilion that existed in the World's Fair, there was a diorama that was similar to this that really inspired this diorama. Leaving it, the vehicles entered the Epcot Energy Information Center, where they reassembled back into their original theater seating formation. Here, guests viewed a 12-minute live-action film on three giant wraparound screens that took them on an in-depth look at various current and future energy resources around the world. Modern wind turbines, fusion power, and Universe of Energy's own solar panels were offered as a solution for future energy. The final images of the space shuttle taking off concluded the film. Now, I have to say that it's interesting that Disney used the space shuttle in two different attractions. It was here, and it was also in Horizons. It was such a big, momentous thing that was happening at the Space Center, which is only 50 miles away from where Epcot is, that it really did capture the imagination and wound up being used several times in the attractions. Welcome back, folks, to the 20th century. As you have seen... The Mesozoic era was a time of violent geologic activity. For a hundred million years, the Earth was torn by natural forces. Vast amounts of organic material were trapped deep inside the Earth. And over millions of years, it was transformed into the fossil fuels we use today. These monitors behind the operating console show current and future energy resources around the world. Among them are fossil fuels, nuclear, hydroelectric, geothermal, wind, and solar. Your traveling theater vehicles are partially powered by the sun. The solar cells on this building's roof help recharge batteries in the vehicles when they're stopped. Computers guide the vehicles along a wire that is just an eighth of an inch thick. The maps highlight locations that we'll visit during the next part of our journey. 
We'll travel from the Alaska frontier to the North Sea to the Mideast. We'll explore potential energy sources for the near and distant future. Now that you've experienced the dramatic forces that created today's fossil fuels, let's continue our journey through the universe of energy. Sometime in the next century, its immense power may be economically harnessed, and sunlight itself will become one of the real keys to the universe of energy. But today, a far different form of energy is coming from sun-parched regions of the globe like the Middle East. Stretching across the hot desert sands, massive pipelines carry petroleum to the edge of the sea. It is a supply that is not inexhaustible, however, but as the global demand for energy, all kinds of energy continues to increase. simply park its cars or turn off its lights until that day. We must continue to conserve and extend today's energy sources and develop a broad mix of alternatives for the future. Already current supplies are being stretched through the use of heat sensing monitors and other new systems which help increase energy conservation. At the same time, Special oil recovery techniques are helping to bring older fields back to life. Even so, the world is continuing to diminish today's drone reserves. The energy search must go on to help us bridge to the future. Out in space, high in the sky, satellites scan the face of the Earth, helping to find new oil and gas deposits. Seismic crews record echoes to pinpoint new locations. The best hopes for finding major new supplies often lie in some of the world's most remote environments, sometimes miles below the ocean floor. On land, these great drilling platforms would dwarf all of the world's tallest buildings. In the ocean, they function as complex, massive island communities, surviving in often treacherous waters like the chilling, windswept North Sea. The deep water search is now pushing still deeper. Here, a new breed of remote-controlled ocean floor units can bring up oil and gas from once inaccessible regions. The job of transporting fossil fuels has its own challenges. Near the top of the world, at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, is the largest oil field in North America. The Trans-Alaska Pipeline begins here. A $9 billion energy highway stretching 800 miles over and under the rugged frontier. At the end of the pipeline line, 
hundred one half million barrels of crude oil arrive here every day, enough to meet the petroleum needs of nearly seven million households. But even as these frontiers are explored, new technologies are being developed that one day may economically provide energy in the form of synthetic gas and liquids. Synthetic oil is already being produced of these vast Canadian tar sands. Oil shale, the rock that burns. Located in the western United States, it is one of the greatest sin-fuel resources of all. Mined, crushed, and heated, it could yield billions of barrels of liquid energy. Smaller quantities of sin-fuel may be derived from a pesky river-clogging weed, the water highest along with grains, recycled wastes, and other biomass resources. Coal, perhaps the most abundant of fossil fuels. It is mined primarily to generate electricity, a growing demand for the years ahead. And one day, it too may yield large amounts of synthetic oil and gas. energy equivalent to more than twice the Middle East oil supply. Sometimes coal is hidden deep in the earth. Other times it lies near the surface. Here the overlying soil and rock must first be removed to reveal the coal deposits below. Then it is replaced and replanted, a massive reclamation project to help bring the land back to life. Another environmental demand on coal is also important. While some is clean burning, some requires precipitators, wet scrubbers, and other new technologies, costly but necessary systems designed to reduce emissions to harmless water vapor. Other sources, even small ones, may also help meet tomorrow's growing demand for electricity. From the Earth's great underground cauldron, the power of geothermal steam, to drive the windmills of tomorrow. From the restless sea, power from driving waves, tides, and changing temperatures. From the awesome force of moving and falling water, hydroelectric power. Nuclear energy. Controversial, but still a significant source of electricity. Chicago, for example, gets more than half its electric power from nuclear plants. And around the world, France, Germany, Japan, and many other nations are continuing to develop nuclear power as part of their energy bridge to the future. Some countries are also moving ahead with a new process, the breeder reactor, which actually creates more fuel as it operates. Within two decades, nuclear energy will probably contribute about a fourth of the world's electricity. Unlimited electric power for tomorrow. Is it a fantasy? A pipe dream? 
Scientists at Princeton and other research centers don't think so, as they inch toward the process of the stars, nuclear fusion. The challenge? To fuse hydrogen isotopes at temperatures exceeding 180 million degrees. The potential exists for a real breakthrough to one day harness this inexhaustible new energy source. The sun itself comes another potential for the future, solar energy. Solar heating and cooling are already in limited use. By the next century, research will hopefully lower the cost of converting sunlight directly into electricity. Epcot's energy pavilion provides a showcase for today's solar technology. More than 80,000 photovoltaic cells have been installed on the roof. When exposed to sunlight, they generate electric current to help power your traveling theater cars. So, in a sense, you've been riding on sunshine throughout our show. In our ever-changing world, the road to tomorrow's energy is indeed long, complex, and challenging. It demands the development and wise use of today's energy resources. It calls for practical and affordable new sources for tomorrow. And it will require the combined efforts of science, industry, government, and the public. Then we will indeed bridge to the future, to a world which one day may harness the entire universe of energy. At the conclusion of the film, the screens raised and the entire seating area traveled beneath them into Theater One and rotated back into the starting position, facing the audience toward a large cylindrical-shaped screen. There, guests viewed a two-minute computer animation film that was reflected off of mirrored walls within the theater. The film depicted an ever-evolving landscape of color, laser-like imagery of various ways mankind has benefited from harnessing energy for his use, and was accompanied by a reprise of the upbeat Universe of Energy song. So was the ride boring? Was it cool? 
I, I still can't decide. It's been many years now, and I'm still on the fence about it. I think the length is what always got me. I enjoyed the nature of the attraction. I enjoyed the revolutionary aspect of the cars that they were using. But there was something about the length of it that still continued to bother me. While I loved the dinosaurs and appreciated the message they were sharing with us, it was, as someone once said, a little solemn and looks at how energy is used and is perhaps a little heavy-handed about humans and how we're destroying it. Even from the outside, the energy pavilion will be a strong visual statement as it generates power via its own solar energy systems. Here, the formation of fossil fuel energy will be portrayed, climaxed by a sudden energy storm of wind, lightning, rain, fire, and volcanic eruptions, demonstrating the almost endless potential of raw energy available for man. Visitors will see the alternatives and choices he must consider today, racing against the clock in a search for new energy, and finally, harnessing tomorrow's vast new sources for the future world of energy. So as you exited the ride, you were directed back to Communicore, where you could enter the energy exchange. I'll save a discussion of that for another podcast when I'm talking about Communicore. Ah, don't worry, that'll come up in the future. At various points, Exxon put marketing materials out there, but the one that was the most amusing was a comic book that featured Mickey and Goofy learning about energy, and it was a glorious advertisement for Exxon. I'll put a link to a review of that comic book, complete with pictures, in my show notes page. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, here are some fun facts about the attraction from the field guide to Epcot. Energy enigmas. Every 40 minutes, the sun delivers enough energy to the Earth's surface to meet the needs of all the people on Earth for a year. However, only a fraction of this solar energy is actually used by people. People have harnessed the sun's energy since ancient times. The Greeks stored water in glass containers to heat it with the sun's rays, and the Chinese used curved mirrors to light fires with sunlight. Indians in the southwestern United States built in adobe buildings facing south that they could absorb the sun's rays during the day and release the heat at night. Fuels and their primary uses. Coal to produce energy. Natural gas to heat buildings, cook food, and, and provide energy for industries. Nuclear to produce electricity. Petroleum, unprocessed crude oil, as fuel for stoves and boilers. Petroleum, processed as gasoline, diesel oil, and kerosene as fuel for motor vehicles. And then they had a technology quiz. What is the origin of most of the energy on Earth? And the answer is the sun. What are fossil fuels? Dead plants and animal materials that were buried in the Earth many millions of years ago and has been transformed by time, heat, and pressure into coal, petroleum, and natural gas. Number three, what are the three chief sources of energy in the world? In order of importance, fossil fuels, water power, and nuclear energy. Number four, name some alternative energy sources. Solar energy, wind power, tidal energy, and geothermal power. What are the three problems associated with fossil fuels? Exhaustion of fuel supplies, environmental pollution, and political and economic effects. And then finally, number six, what are three challenges for energy use in the future? Number one, developing new and renewable energy sources. Number two, improving efficiency in fuel use. And number three, conservation of existing resources. Couple of attraction fun facts. At the time of its construction, the Universe of Energy Pavilion was the largest privately funded solar power installation in the world. The roof of the pavilion contains a photovoltaic array of approximately 2,200 modules, with each module containing 36 individual silicon solar cells. The entire array can produce up to 70,000 watts of DC or direct current power. The traveling theater cars are electronically guided by a buried wire that is only one-eighth of an inch thick. The scenic backdrop of the diorama is the largest ever created by Disney Imagineers. It measures 32 feet high by 515 feet long and took a team of three artists nearly 6,000 hours to paint. What is the scent you smell in the diorama? Why, it's eau de swamp, of course. And then there's a quote from Arbuckminster Fuller. Society cannot continue to live on oil and gas. Those fossil fuels represent nature's savings accounts, which took billions of years to form. And there you go. That's my look at the original version of the Universe of Energy that lasted from opening day in 1982 until 1996. On a future podcast, I'll talk about what came next and how it became Ellen's Energy Adventure. 
I hope you found this a little bit fun. And as I reminisce and wax nostalgic a little bit about what the universe of energy originally was, I found it to be kind of a fun attraction. And there were certain things about it that were charming. The first two or three times I wrote on it, I thought it was remarkable. And then after that, it kind of detracted a little bit, kind of fell apart for me a little. It didn't feel the same. Uh, I think the length of it and the fact that they didn't update the story and it felt a little bit like, hey, humans are destroying the earth. You know, what are you going to do about it? I thought that was a little bit much. Uh, I think it needed just a little bit of a refresh to make it interesting. Plus that length. I didn't mind a 45-minute attraction. It was fine with me, but it always felt like it was a commitment, right? You go into most attractions and they're 10, 12 minutes and you go, yeah, that's great. That was fun. This was 45 minutes of commitment and there was no getting out of the car and just walking out of the theater. You had to stay for the whole thing. So there was a certain kind of thing about it that felt confining, almost like you were stuck there for that hour. You know, it's funny how you wait in line, you wait in a queue for 45 minutes and you kind of go, okay, that's cool because I'm going to ride on this cool attraction. But here you were sitting there and you were learning about energy and that seven minutes was great. And the Universe of Energy song was kind of fun, but the rest of it was just kind of long and felt like it was just going on for a while. And there wasn't, it wasn't that interesting and that much to see. It was always neat to see the space shuttle and some of the other things that were there, but overall it just felt like it didn't, didn't really work. So that was my take on it. Anyway, post your thoughts below on my show notes page and let me know what you think about it. The Universe of Energy, one of those fun attractions. Well, that's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. There you go.